Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR for another cram session. In these special releases, we have aggregated the takeaways and tips from previous episodes. If you'd like a focused refresher on previous topics covered, stay tuned for this cram session. Coming up next are the takeaways and tip from the episode FinTech Investing with Sheil Manat. Always so great to get a chance to catch up with Sheil. Really good information on FinTech here. Let's recap the key takeaways. Key takeaway number one is called the categories within FinTech. Today, Sheil talked about how he segments out the very broad FinTech sector, which is really an umbrella term that includes many subsectors. Those segments included lending, insurance, money transfer, capital markets, blockchain, personal finance management, and crowdfunding. Each of these segments is really like its own sector with differences in channel dynamics, customer segments, regulatory, and types of financial institutions. And recall that with each company, Shield considers whether it's a disruptor or an enabler. Disruptor is clearly disrupting existing financial institutions while enablers sell to financial institutions. Okay, key takeaway number two is called experience matters. One of the key differences that Shield looks for in fintech startups versus that of others is experience on the team. There are significant regulatory and commercial challenges that fintech startups encounter. Because of this, often the best founding teams are a bit more experienced in the sector and have thorough answers to those challenges. And in terms of sourcing, Shiel mentioned that many of his best leads come from Series A VCs that have seen a company pitch, but they are clearly too early for that VC. 500, of course, is a seed stage investor and often invests earlier than many venture firms. Okay, and key takeaway number three is called factors contributing to growth in fintech. The term fintech is still relatively new and one that has a lot of buzz around it. During the interview, Shield did a Google Trends search for fintech and found that in December of 2013, the term ranked four out of 100, and now it ranks 100 out of 100. While some of this increase can be explained by the emergence of the term itself, it is clearly a much-talked-about sector. And the amount of capital deployed into fintech has increased from $2 billion in 2010 to $20 billion last year, a 10x increase in only five years. Shiel also mentioned exits, which have climbed significantly by a factor of four 
over the past four years. And Scheel had some great insights when discussing the history of fintech. He talked about how technology trends go with early adopters of technology. And early adopters of technology tend to be younger people. And fintech's progression followed the needs of these younger folks who started out wanting to communicate, then desiring the ability to transact, and ultimately getting access to financial services. As we reviewed the opportunities going forward, Shiel sees big opportunity in the developed world, but even bigger in the developing world. There are about 2.5 billion people with smartphones today, and there will be 5 billion people with smartphones in five years, the majority of which will be individuals in the developing world that are underbanked or unbanked. And as Shiel articulated, two of the major customer segments that he's following are millennials and the unbanked. I can imagine much more disruption in the developed world to better serve millennials and a tremendous degree of low-hanging fruit in the developing world to serve the unbanked. Okay, let's wrap up with a tip of the week. And this week's tip is called discounting inertia. In today's interview, we spent some time discussing payments and the lack of innovation therein. The most common medium used in payments is the credit card, which is technology that was developed in the 1960s. This antiquated technology is fairly efficient, but also easily stolen. Shiel cited the ease in which a magnetic strip on a credit card can be copied. And of course, one can always write down the information on the front and back of a card and immediately have a way to use that card illegally. And outside of credit, transactions are still dominated by fiat money, a form of currency developed in 11th century China. In 2016, the United States Treasury is projected to spend over $730 million just producing paper and coin currency. And this number does not capture the amount of value that is lost due to counterfeiting. Clearly, there has been a major lack of progress in the currency and payment transaction sectors, which only results in lost value. So the key question here is, why such a lack of progress? Is innovation to blame? I don't think so. Many alternatives to credit cards have been developed over the past 30 years that, in principle, are superior to plastic. And even replacements for the fiat currency system have emerged that are tremendously more efficient less susceptible to piracy, and costs very little to maintain, namely the development of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. So if options exist, then why the lack of adoption? I think the explanation is inertia, i.e. a resistance to change. There are many industries that experience significant inertia, and the degree of inertia is impacted by the types of stakeholders, the number of stakeholders, the ideology of stakeholders, the range of decision makers within each, whether one is dealing with the enterprise or consumers, the amount of infrastructure that exists, the switching costs, regulatory and government influence, and many other factors. In the example that Sheil and I talked about today, one must consider the credit card companies, the retailer, the payment processor, the point-of-sale hardware manufacturers, and, of course, the consumer. In a two-sided marketplace with many intermediaries, is there a hugely compelling reason for why players on each side of the transaction are going to change? Does new technology exist that allows for a better method? Can extraneous layers in the value chain 
be disintermediated. Often with new technologies, we hear about the killer app, referring to the application of a technology in a way that provides huge value for that specific task. And finding this killer app is often a gateway which allows a technology to expand to many more applications and use cases. In a way, the killer app can function as a Trojan horse, laying the foundation for broader market applications. As I think about the credit card example, the two major stakeholders in any transaction are the purchaser and the seller. And the purchaser's most significant needs include efficiency of use, i.e. how fast can I complete this payment, and security, i.e. how well is my information protected. And the seller's most significant need is reducing fees, i.e. how can the cost per transaction be lowered. If a payment application exists where speed and security are particularly painful for the consumer and transaction cost is particularly high for the seller, the right ingredients are there for a killer app. And if buyers and sellers get comfortable with the new technology in applications such as these, it will begin to expand to other applications. Look at a company like PayPal that was able to find its killer app by providing a payment mechanism to eBay users, eliminating the significant pain of the check-by-mail standard. After completing a transaction via eBay, many of these consumers became comfortable with PayPal and began using it for a variety of transactions. Look, resistance to change can be tough, and a startup founder may not have all the answers for how they will deal with inertia, but understanding its sources is critical. While we can imagine a future of ubiquitous flying cars, cryptocurrency, and human intelligent AI, technology is not all that's required to attain these realities. So rather than discount inertia, respect it, and look for that killer app, Trojan horse, or foothold that best exemplifies the value of making the switch. Coming up next are the takeaways and tip from the episode SpaceX and Elon Musk's Mission to Mars with Tim Urban. Big thanks to Tim again for joining us. I know that he's incredibly busy and has many different projects going on, so thanks again, Tim, for doing it. Before jumping into the key takeaways, I want to mention that Tim included a number of great images in his post to help illustrate the concepts. I will plan to include a few of these images on the blog post at fullratchet.net if you'd like to get a better sense for the material. Okay, key takeaway number one is called backing up the hard drive. If you care about the survival of the human species, then the importance of space travel is critical. There may be many of you that don't care about our species' survival. And for you, backing up the humanity hard drive, so to speak, probably seems ridiculous. But for the rest of us, there are few things more important. As Tim articulated and laid out in his article... Extinction events have been numerous and catastrophic on Earth. Events including a supernova, a gamma-ray burst, a solar superflare, a black hole, a global epidemic, and an asteroid could all result in another extinction event. Thus far, since animals began existence on the Earth, there have been five major extinction events, each wiping out between 60 and 96% of all species. And there will be more extinction events, potentially even brought about by humans. The question is not if an extinction event will happen, it's when. 
And while it hopefully will not occur within our lifetimes, it will certainly take many lifetimes to effectively back up the human species hard drive. There's no better time than the present to start the process, and that's what Elon is doing. Okay, key takeaway number two is called the Mars Trip Then Diagram. Tim did an excellent job of breaking down the problem with space travel to Mars. And it's not that we can't do it. The issue is that it's incredibly expensive. Tim outlined that there must be both a will and a way to go to Mars, i.e. people must want to go and they must also have the means to go. But contrary to the popular phrase, if there's a will, there's a way, Elon thinks the reverse, that if there's a way, there's a will. As Tim explained, the demand side will take care of itself. Just like immigrants that traveled to the New World and colonized foreign lands, there will be plenty of adventurous types that have a desire to visit Mars. The real issue lies not in the will, but in the way. If millions of people want to go to Mars, but do not have the financial means to do it, it will never happen. This is where Tim talked about the Venn diagram. One circle representing those that want to go, the other representing those that can afford to go. And it's Elon's objective to expand the overlap of these two circles, which leads to our third and final takeaway, revolutionizing the cost of space travel. Currently, it's possible to put a human on Mars. The technology may be old, but it exists. However, the estimated cost per seat is around $100 billion. This is an industry that only governments and billionaires have access to. But as Tim described, Elon set out to revolutionize the cost of space travel in three ways. Number one, building new technology. Number two, bringing more people per flight. And number three, making rockets reusable. On the first point, building new technology, current rocket technology is based on innovation from the 1960s. What we're using is actually really old rocket technology. So Elon endeavored to rebuild the rocket from the ground up. And by building a new, fresh rocket, they've reduced the cost to take payloads into orbit by about a sixth. And Elon believes that this can be reduced to about a tenth of the cost of old rocket technology. The second point here was to bring more people per flight. Simply, if the cost of one mission is $500 billion and you take five people, it will cost $100 billion per seat. Whereas if you can build a much bigger, more efficient rocket to take 100 people, the cost base can be spread across many more tickets. And finally, the third point here and most significant cost reduction opportunity is making rockets reusable. As Tim explained, about 99% of spaceflight cost is the rocket. And each time a mission is flown, the rockets are discarded or need to be rebuilt. So if these now become reusable, costs could be reduced by a factor of 100. Elon aimed to do this by landing a rocket vertically, where the rocket lands the same way it launched, on its two feet. This was a tremendously difficult challenge that SpaceX has now done successfully three times. Just to recap, the initial goal was to get the price for a trip to Mars down to $500,000 per seat. And Elon now thinks that SpaceX may get it down to $100,000. The overlap on the Venn diagram starts to get much larger at this point. Okay, let's wrap up with a tip of the week. And this week's tip is called The First Mover's Dilemma. 
competing against non-consumption. In today's interview, Tim talked about the challenge for first movers. Not only do they, number one, have to build a business, and number two, have to innovate and develop new technology, but number three, they also have to teach the world about the importance of the new industry. To give some examples here, the first internet service provider's biggest opportunity came not from converting a small number of internet users, but rather getting non-internet users to use the internet. The early automobile makers' biggest challenge was not convincing people why they should buy their brand, but rather why they should consider purchasing an automobile in the first place. And even a more modern example, take a company like Fitbit. They may have gotten early traction with consumers that already had GPS and health monitoring fitness watches, but the big opportunity that they capitalized on was getting the mass market to see the benefit of wearing a Fitbit all day, every day. The first mover in a space has tremendous opportunity, but therein also faces a dilemma. This is related to the concept we often hear about competing against non-consumption. Often the single biggest competitor for any company in any sector is non-consumption. There are always far more people out there that could be using your product but aren't using anything. And this is why I dislike seeing startup pitch slides that talk about competition. If one is addressing a real pain point in a unique way, they will be creating a new market where the challenge is to convince non-users to become users. This even relates to raising venture capital and growing the base of angel investors. I've spoken with a number of high net worth individuals about startups and angel investing. And incredibly, the conversation is rarely about why they should invest alongside me instead of another venture investor. Rather, it's often about why they should be investing in this asset class at all. The unknown, risky black box that is venture is still very real. Even VC fund managers are competing against non-consumption. Ask anyone with a million dollars of net worth what percentage of your portfolio is allocated to venture capital. You may get more confused looks than answers. Behind every great innovator is a great storyteller. Elon understood that, and Tim articulated it. Before consumer adoption, there must be awareness and understanding. And the first mover's dilemma is not one of competition, but rather non-consumption. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. 
Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. Coming up next are the takeaways and tip from the episode, What's Wrong with Venture with Dave McClure. Okay, thanks again to Dave for making the time for us. Let's recap the key takeaways. Number one is called the lack of innovation in VC. Compared to building a business, investing is just not a lot of work. Dave talked about how the effort for VCs is concentrated on getting the fund raised. After that, most of the job is about taking meetings and saying no with the occasional yes. There's a lot of folks that make a good salary on management fees, whether or not they have a successful fund and receive carry. Because of that, a lot of the way VC operates now is not very different from how it did 30 to 40 years ago. And Dave believes that the generalist VC is going away. Going forward, he believes that there will be more sector focus, specialization, services, business development, recruiting, and education. He sees much more competition and differentiation in the future amongst the VC ranks. And another issue combating progress is related to LPs. Dave said that LP influence over fund strategy may not be positive, but it's also not a new trend. And those early and new fund managers that one might think should be the most innovative are also the most likely to be influenced by LPs. This results in fund managers that will move their strategy toward the sexy trend of the day. So those that should be driving change end up as fast followers. Key takeaway number two is called fundraising concerns. When discussing concerning trends in the fundraising environment, Dave mentioned both early and late stage issues. First, let's review the early stage. So number one was that more convertible notes are coming in at increasingly higher caps. Dave has observed over recent years that many entrepreneurs are raising more than a million dollars on convertible note structures. And when these founders eventually get to an equity term sheet, the conversion may not occur with reasonable expectations. They may expect to be giving up 10 to 20% where they're actually giving up 30 to 40%. And then there are those that raise on a convertible but never get to a subsequent equity round. Convertibles are debt capital, not equity, which brings another set of issues if conversion fails to occur. Okay, and the second point in the early stage issues was the increase in seed investment. We also discussed the influx of new angels, new seed funds, and much more capital at the early stages. Where there used to be a handful of seed funds, there are now over 100. But Dave doesn't see this as a major problem. While newer investors seem less sensitive to valuation, and have less experience, this overall has had positive impact on the ecosystem. And then we discussed late-stage issues, the first being the influx of non-VC capital. When discussing the recent reduction in valuations, particularly for SaaS, Dave's opinion was that they've come back down to a more rational level. For a period they were inflated, 
and new entrants were driving some of this valuation increase. We've talked about this a number of times in the newsletter and Venture Weekly. Many late-stage private companies have stayed private longer and grown faster into multi-billion dollar companies. This restricted the supply side of growth tech companies in the public markets and has caused much more demand for investment in late-stage private companies. With this, a host of new players started investing in late-stage venture. Corporates, private equity, hedge funds, and large financial institutions all became active financiers in the venture market. And this led to the second issue we discussed, which was the late-stage dirty term sheet. While a number of these later-stage investors became less valuation-sensitive, they also protected their downside. By including lots of structure or liquidation preferences, they could ensure that if the company raised again or went public at a lower valuation than the current round, they would still get the return they needed. So they were playing both sides. If things went great and the valuation continued skyrocketing, they win. If things go poorly or flat, then they still get their healthy liquidation preference and the previous investors, namely the common stockholders, i.e. founders and employees, lose a lot of their return. This is where the infamous full ratchet rears its ugly head. While full ratchets are typically less common or concerning at the early stages, they have become a preferred method for late-stage investors to capture more equity. Okay, and then key takeaway number three is called what's going right with VC. Despite today's controversial topic, we also discussed what's going well and who's driving positive change. Regarding innovators on the investment side, Dave mentioned 500's efforts to have a much more diversified portfolio, both in volume and diversity of investments. Others in the industry that he feels have been innovative include Y Combinator and Techstars at the seed stage, First Round at Series A, and Google Ventures and Andreessen Horowitz at the B or later stages. And Dave also mentioned some positive trends in venture, including... VCs have become more international. There is significantly more tech infrastructure and plumbing for entrepreneurs to build on. It's become a lot cheaper to build a startup. It's easier to get the information required to build and grow a company. And in general, entrepreneurs are smarter and more educated about the entire process. All right, let's wrap up with a tip of the week. And this week's tip is called Forever or Fleeting. Today, Dave talked about sectors and trends that are hot and attract many investors. Even LPs are wooed by the new sexy tech trends, which has influenced the thesis of VC fund managers. Dave has seen many cycles over the years and has structured his thesis around long-term, sustainable, competitive advantages. And as I reviewed his comments, I saw a parallel at the business model level. I considered my deal flow and the businesses that have staying power. Not at a technology or sector level, but in the way the business attracts and retains customers. And I asked myself, from this list of startups, which have long-term sustainable value creation? Are their customers a one-time event or a loyal customer for life? I just received a deck yesterday from a company that has developed a SaaS platform for high school athletes. They have great adoption, high engagement, and seem to be providing strong value to their customers. But their business has distinct limitations. They do not want to serve pre-high school athletes, 
and there is no strategy to expand a college. They have a four-year window to serve their customers. Another startup deck that I received a couple weeks ago was from a company that has reimagined the baby crib. They have a beautiful free trade organic product that has had strong success selling direct to consumer on the internet. Cool product, great founding team, healthy traction. But again, this is a one-time sale at a distinct point in time. With each of these businesses, are they selling to a customer that will remain loyal in perpetuity? Is there an opportunity to build more value and sell more to that customer for decades to come? I think the answer is no, unless they reimagine their customer. Is the customer really the high school athlete or is it the high school? Is the customer the baby's parent or is it the retailer that specializes in baby products? I'm not going to tell these founders how to run their businesses. It's their business and their strategy. And this is just my own personal preference. As an investor, I like to see the opportunity for sustained long-term customers. Is the business dependent on attracting mass numbers of new customers to make up for those that churned away? If one's customers are a one-time event, customer acquisition must be a primary focus, and the company's differentiation and staying power may be rooted in its ability to acquire customers. But if the focus is on customer retention and delivering more value, the differentiation can be rooted in product. How do we better serve customers, not just how do we better attract customers? So whether you're building a startup or investing in them, consider asking, are your customers forever or fleeting? That will conclude this cram session installment. Jump on the TFR website at fullratchet.net today to sign up for the newsletter and receive all the info on special content episodes, and the best articles written on startups every week. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you next time.